Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you here. We have just heard the, our primary text. I'm going to be a little bit all over the Bible. Nah, not all over, but, uh, but definitely keep your, your finger well in, in the bulletin where the text is printed or in your Bibles at Revelation 5. Uh, Tyler introduced me, so I, I, I do bring you greetings from Western Seminary where I teach. I bring you greetings from Hinson Church, I, I, I think a, a, a real sister church of Sovereign Hope. Uh, where I get to be an, an elder, and that's where my family is at uh, this morning, and that is where uh, our, our service at your church will be prayed for this morning as well. I, I do come from Portland, but I have a confession to make to you. I'm, I'm really not a genuine Portlander, and the reason for that is I am not a hipster in any sense of the word. Now, you might think if you have watched Portlandia, have any of you seen Portlandia before? You might think that everyone in Portland is weird. The, the motto of the city is keep Portland weird. And so the uninitiated might think everybody in Portland is a hipster. More than that, I live in southeast Portland, the very heart of hipsterville. And, and it's true, that, that is where I live. But, but here is my confession for you this morning. When it comes to being a hipster, I am a total fraud. I, I am a pretender. I'm, I'm basically a squatter. I, I, I live literally under the constant threat that one day the cool police are going to show up at my door, knock on it, and say, is Todd here? And I'll say, yeah, I am, I am he. And, and they will say, uh, you don't belong here. You, and, and, and I'll just say, you're right. You're right. I, I, thanks for letting me live here as long as you have. Uh, and they'll say, vacate the premises, and so I, I will just go, uh, hoping that my family will follow. Now, of course, if you just look at me, if, if you look at me and if you look at my wife, you would know almost immediately that I'm not a hipster. I don't do the things that cool people in Portland do. I, I, so I don't even know why I live there. I, I am not a fan of beer. I, I loathe coffee. You could not pay me to get on a bike, let alone a skateboard or those little scooters that litter the city everywhere. But but as we all know, behavior is is not near as important, at least on first glance, as, as looking the part. I do not bear the marks of a hipster in any way. So what would that be? Well, I am absolutely incapable of growing a beard. This is like six days growth for me right now, right? Uh, my, the, the only piercings on my body come from stepping on Legos every single morning when I walk to the bathroom, and, and, and there, there is no ink on me at all, no ink whatsoever. I haven't been able to think up an inscription that I want on my body for the next like six months, let alone for the rest of my life. And if you look at me, my arms are so skinny that even if I did come up with something I wanted, it would have to be an abbreviated memo at best, right? So I just do not belong there. Okay, in, you know, well, that was serious, but, but in even more serious, more seriousness, uh, behavior and marks. Behavior and marks are the telltale signs of authenticity. 
You can say that you're something, but self-attestation will only get you so far. You need to look the part, and then you have to play the part. And, And in this fickle world of ours, we know beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's, it is difficult to meet the expectations of others. If, if you come to me and you think, hey, I'm going to get a really good idea of what a person from Portland, Oregon is like, uh, I, I'm going to disappoint. I'm going to disappoint. I, I feel far more at home, frankly, in like rural Montana than I do even in Missoula or certainly in Portland, Oregon. Because people have expectations. And sometimes we fail to meet those expectations. And and when the stakes are high, when the stakes are high, it is really difficult to meet expectations. It feels like people care more. And this morning we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ who came claiming to be, claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. Everyone understood, at least in Israel at the time, that the one who was the Messiah would be the one who would save Israel. And when you're tasked with the responsibility of saving people, saving humanity, redeeming a cosmos for the Lord, boy, it is very difficult to meet the expectations of others. This morning, we're going to be looking at two very different royal entries of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're both in Scripture, one from the Gospels and one in the book of Revelation that we just read. And and what we're going to find is that the people's champion, the Messiah, arrives on the scene in Israel in about the year roughly zero, 2,000-some years ago. But when he arrives on the scene, there's going to be a lot of initial confusion. And I say confusion to such a degree that it's going to result in his crucifixion, his death. But then we'll contrast that with another royal entry where I think clarification will come. So this morning, if if you are here, if you're listening, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I would like for you to consider the question of your greatest need. To quote the great theologian from the 80s and 90s, Bonnie Tyler, If you are holding out for a hero, what will he look like? What will he look like? Will you recognize his marks? And if you don't know what you're actually looking for, even though you feel this need in your life, how will you recognize your savior, your champion, your king, if he were to appear? Who has the authority and wisdom to bring clarity to your search. For the rest of you who are here, who are listening, maybe you do understand yourself to be a follower of Christ, a a Christian. Well, my invitation is roughly the same, but I would also like for you to consider how might better understanding of both yourself and your Savior lead to better service and worship? So, so those are the questions for us. I'm going to pray for us one more time very briefly, and then we'll, we'll open up the text. Uh, Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right, I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 19. And what we're going to find here, if, if you're taking notes, what we're going to find in this passage is that outside of heaven, praise is imperfect. Outside of heaven, praise is imperfect. This is Luke chapter 19. I'll begin in verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? That's a pretty good question. Why are you taking my colt? And so they said to him, "Uh, The Lord has need of it. And it worked. (laughs) It worked. Uh, They brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I want to focus on the latter part of of this passage here. This is Jesus' royal entry into Jerusalem. It had been prophesied, you know, thousands, hundreds and hundreds of years, even thousand years earlier that on this date, on this date, um, Jesus would would come into Jerusalem. So there's an expectation for those who who were waiting and, and wondering, there's this buzz about Jesus. He's going into Jerusalem. And, and so we, down the Mount of Olives, into the Kidron Valley, and then up, up towards the temple. And, and what we find here in verses 37 and 38 is that it is Jesus' disciples who are behind this action of him riding the colt into the royal city. There's a multitude of disciples, we're told. They are praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen. And if you've read through the Gospels before, you know that Jesus' ministry was one continuous stream of mighty deeds. It demonstrated, these deeds demonstrated Jesus' right to be king of the kingdom of God And his deeds had also brought a real foretaste of the kingdom. This is what life in the kingdom will be like when the king sits on his throne. And what we see in Jesus is word and deed coming together perfectly and beautifully, always in Jesus Christ. Well, what were these deeds that they might have been thinking about as they praised God for all that they had seen? If you were following Jesus at the time, you saw the lame walking, the dead being raised, the sick were healed, the demonized were exercised, the hungry were fed, the poor had good news preached to them. All of these things that Jesus had done were anticipated by the Old Testament prophets. 
they had said that when the kingdom comes, it would be characterized by things like this. And so Jesus, from start to finish of his ministry, he demonstrated his kingly worth. He had done the exact things anticipated by the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And in verse 38, we're told that the praise indicates that Jesus should have been welcomed as a leader, as as an agent of God. He is the king that Israel had been waiting for. Peace and joy were proclaimed. You saw that? They were praising God for for the peace and and, and joy that, that Jesus brings. And those same things had been sung over Jesus by the angels at his birth. Demonstrating that from start to finish of Jesus' first advent earthly ministry, it had been ordained by God as a good thing. It is good. It is good that the king is here. The king has finally come. So there is excitement about Jesus as we're told multitudes of disciples are really geeked about Jesus being there. But that excitement towards the end of the passage I read, it wasn't unanimous, was it? Enter the Pharisees, right? And so if this were like an, an, an old movie, we would boo and hiss when the Pharisees show up and they throw a wet blanket over everything. They are concerned about this messianic fervor, the messianic confession, and, and they sought to, to quell it, to, to stifle it, to, to put it to an end. And we don't know precisely why, Maybe they thought the praise was inappropriate. Maybe they thought it was blasphemous. Some might have been thinking, this is really going to rock our like, peace with Rome. Uh, we need to stop this before things get out of hand. It's just not politically wise right now. And so they order it stopped. And more than that, they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Jesus' response is, is, is really remarkable. No, I, I will not do that. Uh, the disciples' praise, according to Jesus, was entirely right and proper. In fact, he said, they are compelled to do so by everything that is right. In fact, if they were to stop, the very rocks would take up the anthem. Have any of you been to the Holy Land before, to Israel? It's like a big rock garden there, right? It would have been an awesome cacophony of sound if the rocks had started praising God. But, but I, I don't think Jesus actually expected that to happen. His point was this, though. Even the inanimate creation recognizes its God and king. And so the question is, why can't the king's people recognize the king? Why not indeed? Within one week of this incredible event where everyone's so jazzed about Jesus. Within one week, the king's people would have their way, rejecting their Christ, their Messiah, and they would have him crucified on a Roman cross. Crucified on a Roman cross. Creation might have been able to recognize its savior, but neither the Roman Empire, the power brokers of the day, nor the people primed to receive her king, Israel, recognized him. And so we have to ask, what went wrong here? Why the confusion? Why the rejection and the cruel maliciousness toward this 
itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. If Jesus truly were the king that the disciples had been proclaiming, why was his mission so easily dismissed, rejected, ended in crucifixion? And, and when Jesus dies, what's to become of this kingdom that he had been preaching and proclaiming? Were the Old Testament prophets wrong? Would judgment not come upon the enemies of God? Would, would God's people not ever be vindicated? Would the creation not be renewed? I mean, these are all things that the prophecies of the Messiah predicted. And further, consider Jesus himself. He didn't look the part. He didn't look the part at all. He looked like a fraud, especially after the crucifixion. His, his only regalia, the royal robes, were a cruel joke put on by mocking Roman soldiers. And he had a crown of thorns. To make matters worse, now, forever, he would bear the marks, the ignoble, shameful marks of crucifixion. The holes in his hands and his feet, his side, they bear testimony to his rejection by his own people, the people he came to save. These aren't royal marks, are they? They're the marks of a common criminal, the marks of shame. These are scars of shame. And embarrassment. And so we have to ask, what kind of king was Jesus? What kind of king is Jesus? To answer that question, we're going to go ahead. We're going to flip way ahead in our scriptures, turn to Revelation 4 and 5. To make sense of what kind of king Jesus is, we're going to go to another triumphal entry, this time into the throne room of God. And it's going to bring some clarity for us. So if you'll turn over to Revelation chapter 4. We'll just skim through that one really fast. Revelation chapter 4. And what we're going to find in Revelation chapter 4 is that in heaven, God is praised perfectly. In heaven, God is praised perfectly. I'm not going to read through this. I'm just going to summarize it for you. In verses 1 and 2, John is issued into the throne room of God. He gets like a peek behind the curtain, as it were, as to what is taking place in the heavenlies. And he sees God sitting on his throne. He gives no real description of God, but he describes everything else as best he can. And it's it's unlike anything he has ever ever seen before. As he's writing, he's forced to use simile after simile because he doesn't have the words to describe or or to to name, certainly, but even to describe what he's seeing. It's like, he's like, it's kind of like this, and and it looked like that, and these beings were kind of like this. You get the feeling that John, who's been told to write everything down that he sees, he's like hanging on by his fingernails as as he's writing this. It's, It's a virtually impossible task for him to give voice to it. But he does say that God is seated on his throne. It signifies his rule and judgment. Verses 3 through 5, you get a picture of God and and the Holy Spirit, that the seven spirits are there, uh, the seven spirits of God. It says all sorts of dazzling jewels surrounding the throne are 24 elders, and and they themselves are sitting on 24 thrones that surround the throne of God. And there's debate about what these beings are. And so if, if you would ask me, Todd, who are these beings? Who are they? Uh, You're a professor of theology. Give give us the answer. And so I'm going to tell you the three most important words in all of theology. I don't know. 
I don't know what these beings are. Some people think that they represent humanity. Some believe it's like a ruling class of angels or heavenly beings. I don't know exactly what they are, but I do know that they are remarkable. Remarkable beings that surround the throne of God. There's the reference to the seven spirits of God. I mentioned that, uh, which I think is, is a reference to the holy, perfect spirit of God who resides before the throne of God with God the Father. There are, and, and then we're told that there are four strange beings who are covered with wings and eyes. And, and again, Todd, what are those? Three most important words. I don't know. I, I don't know what these beings are, but they are awesome. We know that. And, and I'm guessing that the eyes demonstrate, uh, not that they're like freaky, 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 although I'd, I'd be terrified if I, they were to walk in here right now, uh, but I, I think the eyes demonstrate that they keep constant vigil over everything. Nothing escapes their gaze. Nothing in the created order does. But our focus, as, as bizarre as these beings are, our focus is drawn not necessarily to what they look like, but what they say. Because in unceasing praise, we're told, they proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they are joined by the 24 elders seated on those thrones who then cast their crowns before the throne of God, proclaiming this, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Three Big, big things. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will, by your will, they existed and were created. So John gets to peek behind the curtain. He gets to see what no human has seen, at least living human has seen, right? He sees the throne room of God. And, and, and I think we need to pause to, to consider the, the nature of praise in heaven here. Here we find that God is praised for who he is, his character and his essence, as well as his role of creator. God, we're told, is the eternal, self-existent one, the one who was, is, and is to come. He always has been, he is right now, and he always will be, and he exists necessarily, necessarily. What's being emphasized here is his eternality and his self-existence. Uh, this teaches us that God is not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. He is entirely, completely self-sufficient. Unlike those whom he has created and those things that he has created, they exist how and why? By the will and pleasure of God. And right here, we're introduced to one of the most important concepts in all of theology. We're introduced to it actually in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we call a mirrorism. It's like from A to Z. Basically, in the beginning, God created everything. And what we're told in this very first verse of the Bible, so fundamentally important, is this. God is God and you are not. God is God and you are not. There's like two, two things that exist in the cosmos, two things that exist. There's God and there's stuff that he made. And if you're something that God made, then you're not God. And if you're God, then you're not something that was made. It's two kinds of things. And so that would be us. So we call this the creator-creature distinction. In short form, it's this. God is God, you are not. Now, you might think, well, how is that that important in theology? Uh, doesn't everybody know that? No, not everyone does. 
Not everyone does. Uh, go to my hometown, for example. Walk down Hawthorne Street, and you will find lots of people who are confused on this God is God and you are not thing, right? And, and, but when we start to miss that, when we start to, when we start to drift from this creator-creature distinction, we'll, we'll go sideways very, very quickly. We're also told that God is the self-existent one, as I mentioned before. And, and what this tells us is that God exists necessarily, as I had said, and, and we do not. We do not. And it tells us that God is self-sufficient. We are completely dependent, right? God doesn't need anyone or anything, including, wait for it, you. God doesn't need you. Now, and you, you might think, well, I'm not sure I like that very much. Doesn't God need me? I mean, I understand God doesn't necessarily need my neighbors, but, but me? <laughs> of course God needs me. I mean, how's God going to get his stuff done without me? I think God can do it quite well without you. This is what the scriptures teach, that you are conditional, as it were, you, right? Uh, God, is, God is necessary. God, you are contingent. There's lots of scenarios where you don't exist. You can probably think of a few of them, right? But there's no possible scenario where God doesn't exist. You think, wow, I'm not sure I like this very much. God doesn't need me? Well, this is the message of Scripture, right? It's almost like this book should come with a warning label, like on a pack of cigarettes, right? Warning, reading this book can be harmful to your self-centered and egotistical way of life, right? Because that's what we find in Scripture here. God is the self-sufficient one. And let me just pause here and say, it, it is great that God is self-sufficient and doesn't need us. Why? Because that means he can love us unconditionally. If, if God needed you, if, if, if he was dependent upon you to meet some sort of thing that he would otherwise lack, then he would not be able to love you unconditionally. His love for you would be based upon you meeting that need or continuing to meet that need. And man, that, can be, that would be a horrible place for us to be. We would fail almost immediately, almost immediately. But because God is self-sufficient and independent, his love for you is based upon his promise, his word. And that's a happy place for us to be. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ, not even you on your worst day. So that's the picture of heaven, Revelation chapter 4. But what we find in chapter 5 is this, in heaven only the perfect are praised. In heaven only the perfect are praised. And in verses 1 through 4, we're introduced to this, heaven, we have a problem. Look at verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. I like that, a mighty angel. I guess in contrast to all the other wimpy angels that are around there at that time. Um, a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look inside of it. And I began to weep loudly, literally to wail, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Okay, what's going on here? Well, first, we have to ask, what is this scroll? If, if we were to keep reading 
past chapter 5 into chapter 6 and following, we would find that the scroll contains God's redemptive plan and the future history of all of God's creation. The scroll that contains the balancing of the scales of justice, the vindication of God's people, God's judgment on the wicked, it's all contained in that scroll. And to break open the scrolls is to initiate this final justice. Contained in the scroll is the definitive divine answer to the question that has buggered humanity ever since basically Genesis 3. How long, O Lord? When will you set everything to rights? In the scroll, the definitive divine answer to everything that is wrong in the world. The definitive divine answer to everyone who has ever thought that apparently God's not paying attention or God doesn't keep score or maybe even God doesn't care. God doesn't even listen. And for any of you, which would probably be all of you, who have experienced tragedy or abuse or injustice, and you have cried out to the Lord, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you stop this? Don't you care? Weren't you watching? Don't you hear me? And it feels for all the world like the only thing that comes back is silence. You need to know from this text that God does see. God does hear. He does care. He is keeping score. He will make everything right, finally and justly. His answer, the response, the plan is written in the scroll, and to open the scrolls is to initiate that final justice that all of God's people have yearned for. But no one is worthy to open the scrolls. No one is worthy to initiate the justice of God. No one is found who can execute that divine judgment. And, And it's not for lack of applicants or a thorough search. Did you see where they looked? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does that mean? Basically everyone who has ever existed. Every single human being who has lived or is living was considered and found wanting. No one who lives or has ever lived is qualified. No one. No one. And and it's here that we're confronted with a, a very sobering truth. We may want for God to execute his justice, but that justice is too white hot for us to even touch. We, we might want for God to get serious about sin. God, aren't you watching this? Don't you care about sin? But God is way more serious about sin than we can even imagine. We, we might want for God to deal with sin, especially the sin of other people, right? Deal with the sin of other people. But God's war on sin, it cuts right through the human heart. And not one of us is worthy to open the scroll. Not one of us is worthy to even enter into God's presence. And this is why John is so heartbroken. 
He has, in chapter 4, just been given a peek into the throne room of God where everything is as it should be. God is seated on his throne in all holiness, and there are these incredible beings that were created to worship him, and they are praising him. It is perfect in heaven. And yet, when confronted with the question, God, when will you put everything to rights? When will you balance the scales of justice finally? The answer appears to come back for lack of a qualified man, never. God, when will you vindicate the righteous? For lack of a champion, it's not going to happen. Now, now, John doesn't have this kind of Pollyanna-esque view of the world. He, he knows the depth of injustice. He knows the vileness of human depravity. And, and, and that's why his heartbreak, because he knows it has to be answered by God. God can't let this go. He can't let this go. The hope of humanity, the hope of creation is that God would act. But there is found no one worthy to initiate that long sought after divine action. And it is too much for John. He, he breaks. He says, I began to weep loudly. As I said, literally, to wail. It is sheer despair, heartbreak. Until verse 5, where heaven's hero is found. Heaven's hero is found. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Yes, John has to be thinking, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the fulfillment of promises that were made to the patriarchs some 1,800 years before the time of Jesus Christ, one would come from the tribe of Judah, one like a lion, royal, proud, regal, who would rule with a scepter, we're told in Genesis, that he would never, ever lose. We're also told he is the root of David. John had to be thinking, yes, yes, the fulfillment of the covenant that was made with David a thousand years before the time of Christ. A member of David's line, a son would come who would reign forever and ever and ever. And we're told here that this one who has entered the throne room of God is worthy precisely because he has conquered. He's conquered. Surely this is the hero that the people of Israel had been waiting for. Someone who, quite frankly, quite frankly, would make that peaceful, itinerant preacher from Nazareth seem just a bit wanting. This is the kind of king the Pharisees were looking for. Surely here is no would-be king who would be tripped up by interreligious and political conflicts like Jesus had been. Then in verse 6, we have to ask this question, who in the heavens is this? Who is this guy? Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And here John is greeted by the first of two surprises. He expects to see a lion from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, a regal king, and he turns and he sees entering a lamb, 
a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The Lion of Judah is, in fact, simultaneously a lamb. Not a lamb in terms of power, but a lamb in terms of sacrifice, we're told. How could this be? How, how could the one worthy, because he had conquered, be the subject of sacrifice? And here we learn exactly what kind of hero, what kind of Messiah was necessary to save God's people and to usher in his kingdom. The people of Israel had expected a kingdom restored to them. They had expected a political solution to their problems. They had expected judgment on the enemies of God. They had expected vindication for the people of God. They had expected this, and they were right to expect it because that's exactly what the scriptures teach. So so where's the confusion? For creation to be renewed for the curse on humanity to be lifted, for all the ruling powers and principalities to be brought into subjection, sin has to be dealt with. Sin must be judged. More importantly, for there to be any people of God, our sin has to be dealt with. Our sin has to be judged. I mean, I I suppose it would have been possible for God to usher in his kingdom without dealing with human sin. But who would have been the people of God? It would have been a kingdom of one person, Jesus. That's it. No one would have been able to enter into the kingdom of God. But but here we see the majestic glory of the wisdom of God on display. That which lifted the curse, that which brought about the subjection of all God's enemies, was the same self-sacrificial act that brought about the redemption and ransom of God's people, including you and me. And this, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as you know, is the gospel. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has borne the penalty of our sin. He has made the effort to bring about reconciliation to himself, something that we could never have done on our own. Jesus Christ died for sin. He died for us, and then he rose again. And any and all who call upon the name of Jesus, who confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. That is, you believe that God has taken care of sin and has demonstrated that by vindicating Jesus, by raising him from the dead, the promise is you will be saved. And, and, and if you are here this morning and you have never closed with God, you have never uh, believed that, My encouragement to you is believe, turn to Christ and be saved. It is your only hope. Jesus, as we'll find here, is your champion. Jesus is your savior. Jesus is your Lord. Why is this? Because we see in verses 7 through 14, in heaven, Jesus is praised because Jesus is God. Jesus is praised because Jesus is God. Look at verse 7 and following. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, that's like Greek for a lot, right? Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, a sevenfold blessing here. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? The same exact place where a hero was looked for. And in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus Christ, he approaches the throne. He takes the scroll from the strong right hand of God. And then John is greeted by a second surprise. The heavenly beings who had been created to give honor and praise to God who had been giving praise just prior to that, to the one seated on the throne, they, as it were, turn from the throne and fall down before the Lamb and begin to worship Him. And I think that is the strongest argument in all of the scriptures for the deity of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Don't we have to believe that if there are any beings anywhere who have their theology of worship straight, wouldn't it be those beings created to worship God? If there are any beings anywhere who understand the implications of worshiping the wrong being, don't you think that it would have to be them? Wouldn't it have to be them? Uh, that, that, that if there are any beings who understand what monotheism actually is, that there is one true God, wouldn't it have to be them? And yet they, as it were, turn from the throne and fall down before the Lamb, offering Him worship that they had been giving to the one seated on the throne. Now, you know, don't you, that God is very long-suffering, and He puts up with a lot of false worship. He even puts up, He endures our own pathetic attempts at worship that so often are tinged with, with things that aren't right. But we're here on earth. Do you really think God's going to put up with idolatry in his own throne room? I don't think so. I mean, you would expect that if Jesus were not God, that the next verse would have been, and then fire from the throne went out and consumed the beings, the 24 elders and the four beings and the lamb who had engaged in such gross idolatry in the very throne room of God. But you don't see that, do you? The praise of the Lamb continues unabated. So our applica one application point for us this morning is do not take worship of Jesus lightly. Do not take worship of Jesus lightly. When we sing as we have this morning, it is not just the precursor to the sermon. It's not a formality to endure. We are joining the heavenly host in participation of a transcendent and weighty activity. And what we do here this morning in Missoula, Montana, matters precisely because of what we are confessing in our singing. 
when we praise Jesus Christ, when we grant to him the glory that is reserved for God alone, you need to recognize that if Jesus Christ is not fully God, then we are committing horrific blasphemy. But if Jesus is worthy, if he is divine, then our praise is just, it is right, it is orthodox, it is true, it is our duty, and because it is right, it is our joy, right? And then we consider the, the, the nature of this heavenly worship. We, we, we saw that, that the Lion of Judah was worthy to take the scroll, we're told, because he had conquered. But what exactly had he done? He was worthy precisely because he was slain. The, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross accomplished the salvation of peoples from every tribe and language and people and nation. The, the promises made to Abraham so long ago that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham and his family. In Jesus Christ, they have been kept. Notice the language and the theology of praise. I, I, I love it. Just, it just piles on. Worthy is Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Just Everything necessary to save God's people, everything necessary to be God, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, possesses maximally. Maximally. He's got the right stuff. He has what it takes. This makes me think of, of the Lord of the Rings. And any, have you all seen Lord of the Rings or read the books? Anyway, there's this little hobbit, insignificant dude who's tasked with this horrible task of taking an, a powerful talisman into the, the, the jaws of the enemy and destroying it. And, and this little hobbit, he, he's like, I, I, I can't do this. And Gandalf, this wizard who has been kind of coaching him along and telling him, he, when, when Frodo says, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to do this? Uh, Gandalf says, you must use such strength and heart and wits as you have. And Frodo says, but I have so little of any of those things. Right? I, I, I don't have what it takes. But Jesus has everything that it takes maximally, maximally. What does it take to save you? It takes the full deity, the full humanity of Jesus. It takes wisdom and knowledge and honor and glory and, and power and compassion and holiness. And Jesus has all of those things maximally. He has everything that it takes to accomplish the salvation of God's people and the renewal of the cosmos and the putting down of all those who would stand against God, including the spiritual powers that accost this world and God's people. Jesus has what it takes. So, Another application, we should model our worship after the worship that's in heaven. I mean, how much of worship is really about us and meeting our needs? How often have, you know, I know you wouldn't do this, but maybe you overheard someone else walk out of a worship service and, and, and complain about the music or, or the preaching, right? That, that guest preacher, he went on way too long. It just, it just didn't do anything for me this morning. Maybe rather than asking ourselves what we thought of the worship service, maybe we ought to ask, what did the Lord think of our worship this morning? We see that worship in heaven focuses on who God is. Throughout the book of Revelation, even now, God is praised for being creator, savior, and judge. Creator, savior, and judge. And so I think our worship should be like that. Theology 
is the language of worship. Theology is the language of worship. That is why your pastors and leaders, they work so hard in crafting the worship service, in discipleship, in small group Bible study. They're teaching you how to worship because theology is the language of worship. And so maybe you're saying, well, well, what, Todd, are you asking me to go to Western Seminary so I can learn to worship well? Yes, that is exactly what, no, no, you don't have to do that. You, you don't have to do that. But be a learner, be a learner. The more you know, the better you will be able to worship. Sometimes in America, we have this disconnect between knowledge of God, like it's book learning, and it gets in the way of my piety, but it never should be that way. And, and, and I know there are people who have lots of lots of degrees and they are, they're just lousy, right? And, and, and you don't want to be like, I, I get that, I get that. But God is worth the investment of your time. He's worth getting to know because the more you know him, the more you will love him. There are no skeletons in God's closet. You can't ever learn too much about God. There's, you can't ever know him too well. He will never grow familiar to you. And then be cross-centered. Be cross-centered. Apparently, worship in heaven right now is cross-centered. So ours should be likewise. Apparently, heaven has not been able to get over the cross. It's like, man, did you just see that? Did you see what God did? Look what he did. Look what he did in the cross. They are stunned at the lengths to which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit went to reconcile you and us to God. And so we should be stunned too. Perhaps our view of ourselves is higher than it ought to be. Maybe it embarrasses us to think of what was necessary to reconcile me to God. After all, a small salvation would require a small work and a small savior, but, but you know, the great reformer Martin Luther would have none of that. Our salvation is great because our need is great. He demanded that people look at the cross, derive our theology of God and of ourselves from the cross. You want to know how great God is? Look at the cross. There you see the justice, the holiness, the power, the strength, the wisdom, every attribute of God demonstrated beautifully at the cross. And do you want to know what humans are like, actually? Do you know what you are like in the depths of who you are? Look at the cross. This is what it took to save you. This is what it took to save you. The cross of Christ brings laser focus to the mystery of God and it puts to death the lie that humans aren't all that bad. We just need a little help. So meditate on the cross. Have you noticed the attention that the gospel writers give to the last week of Jesus' life? Meditate on those passages. Read them over and over again. Explore the cross. If, If Jesus' death becomes the means by which he is granted the throne then there is far more going on at the cross than just the forgiveness of sins. Just very quickly, Jesus sovereignly rules because of the cross. Jesus intercedes for you even now because of the cross. Jesus Christ has made possible the recreation of the cosmos, the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because of the cross. And so we should celebrate the cross. As I said, so much of the gospels are dedicated to reliving, retracing the events of Jesus' last week. Uh, we, we talk about Good Friday. We call it Good Friday, right? The three days before the, the, the Easter event. It's the date where Jesus was, was put on a cross and, and died. It's like the worst thing humanity's ever done, right? If you want to know how evil humans are, look at the cross. Look what we did to the perfect Son of God. And yet we do call it Good Friday. Why? because we understand what God was doing. Even though humans were doing evil, God was doing great good. 
at the cross. And one way of celebrating the cross is, is through the Lord's Supper, which, which you celebrate here. It's, it, it's, it's our way of remembering what Jesus did there. But our destiny is not to celebrate the Lord's Supper forever, right? You realize that? This is like rehearsal. This is rehearsal. One day, a day will come when this Good Friday remembrance will give way to the marriage feast of the Lamb. An activity of remembrance will give way to the recognition of sight because we will see the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the church's great hymn writers thought about that this way as he considered the the scars, the marks of Jesus. And he wrote, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wandering eye, burning eye at mysteries so bright. We will see Jesus, and we will see his scars. The cruel wounds of crucifixion, they're not the scars of shame. They're not indicators of ignominy. They are the marks of a Messiah, the marks of our hero, the marks of our great God and King, and we will with joy fall down before him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been good to us. Thank you for your plan to reconcile us to you, the cosmos to you. We praise you as the just and holy God who will right every wrong, who will vindicate your people, who will bring judgment against those who have hurt us and who have offended you. And Lord Jesus, we say to you, thank you. Thank you for enduring the shame of the cross, for the joy that was set before you, the kingship, a throne that will never, ever go away. And we rejoice that we can be there on that day when you are publicly proclaimed, publicly demonstrated to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess one day that you are Lord. And we rejoice now that we can practice that now and that we can say those true statements even now ahead of that day. We can do it with joy because you have conquered. It is in the name of our great God and King, our crucified and risen Messiah, that we are even able to approach the throne of grace. Amen.